So that's Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, page 1028. We're going to pick up our reading at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Amen. Well, shall we pray as we come to spend a bit of time looking at God's Word? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the great news of comfort and joy that you bring us whenever we look back on Jesus' birth. And as we study this story now, we pray that your Spirit would be opening our eyes to see more of what that comfort and joy looks like. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, we are continuing our series uh, that we're calling The Saviour of the World, going through Luke's Gospel. And let me ask you as we begin, just to think whether, about this question, whether the word salvation is one that excites you. Salvation, saviour. I'm not actually sure that it always excites me, if I'm honest. Uh, it's a word that seems quite old-fashioned or almost outdated in Christian circles. 
But over the last couple of days, as this passage has been sort of sitting with me as I've looked at it and then had a chance to reflect on it a bit during all the Christmassy bits and bobs, I've actually not been able to get that word out of my head. Salvation. Salvation. It's almost taken on a glow as I've been thinking about it. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying this series in Luke's Gospel so far. It's been good to look at the Christmas story again, but to go through Luke's account of it and to see some of the themes that he's trying to draw out as he does so. And I don't know about you, but you start to notice some of the ways that Luke has been really careful in in crafting his material. What I've realized is that for Luke, this isn't about just getting over with the birth and growing up stories before he can get onto the main event, like you would if you were doing a, a normal biography today. These early stories are actually Luke setting the agenda, showing us what's going to be happening in Jesus' life. One commentator calls them previews of salvation. I think that's quite a helpful phrase, previews of salvation. This is Luke giving us a trailer and helping us to understand everything that's going to be coming up in Luke's gospel. And it all kicked off with the angel appearing to Zechariah in the temple and announcing the coming of John the Baptist. And then the next scene, we see uh, the angel coming to Mary, announcing the coming of Jesus. And all the way through, it's John and Jesus sort of intertwined, as Luke tells the story. But where Zechariah was mute because he didn't believe the angel's promise, Mary responds with a joyful song, the one that we opened our service with. A few months later, John is then born, and Zechariah shows his belief now in God uh, by insisting that John will be called John, the name that the angel gave him. And then his mouth is open too, and he joins in with his own joyful song that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we heard the angels telling the shepherds about the good news of great joy. The skies were full with the angel's song as they announced that in the city of David, a saviour has been born to you. Well, salvation and singing are at the heart of today's passage too. I'm thinking of that beautiful moment at the centre of the passage where Simeon lifts up the five-week-old baby Jesus in his arms and cries out in praise, Sovereign Lord, as you promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Well, today we're going to see why salvation is worth singing about. We're going to see why salvation was on Simeon's bucket list, if you like. This was the one thing he wanted to do before he died. Well, the way Luke tells this story, it's it's a story about the person who fulfills the longings of two couples. The first couple is Joseph and Mary, who come to the temple with their five-week-old baby son as obedient Jews to come and do everything that the law requires, Luke tells us. But we're going to focus today on the second couple, Well, they're not actually a couple, but I think we are meant to think of them as a pair, Uh, Simeon and Anna. They're male and female. They're both very old. The only thing that's keeping Simeon going, it seems, is this promise that he's received from the Spirit that he wouldn't die before he sees the Messiah. And Anna, we're told, is a widow who is at least 84 years old. The other thing, another thing that links them is they're both uh, faithful, pious Jews, Um, One set of notes on Luke says that Anna is an eccentric old woman who's always to be found in church. Not maybe the nicest picture of Anna, but she's always in the temple praising God. 
And we're told that Simeon is a spirit-filled believer. But the most important thing about Simeon and Anna, the thing that joins them most closely, is that both of them are waiting. Have a look at verse 25. Luke tells us that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then verse, 20, uh, verse 38, we're told that Anna is one of a group of people who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So both of them are, are doing waiting. And actually it turns out that Luke's used the same word to describe both of those waitings. It hasn't come up in our translation, but it's the same word. And Luke later goes on to use that same word to describe the Jewish people generally as waiting with a hope in God. And so elderly Simeon and Anna are here almost as representatives of the Jewish people as a whole, with one foot in the grave almost, with faded glory, but waiting, longing, holding on for the Messiah. I find it's easy to think of Judaism in Jesus' time as being full of people who are legalistic and proud, full of Pharisees, if you like. But I think that's a bit of a stereotype. Actually, this passage is telling us that there were faithful Jews who believed in God's promises and were looking forward to their fulfillment. People like Simeon and Anna and Joseph and Mary. Just because an institution is corrupt doesn't mean that there aren't faithful people within it. That's true for Judaism before Christ. It's also true of the medieval church before the Reformation, before Martin Luther came along. And I'm sure it's true today in Christian churches where the institutions are corrupt, God will still have faithful people within them. And we need to be careful that we don't kind of mix the two things up. So Simeon and Anna then are examples of faithful believers in a corrupt institution who are longing to see God's promises. They're longing to see the Messiah. But did you notice what Simeon says that he's been waiting for? As he holds up Jesus in his aging arms, he says in verse 30, Now my eyes have seen your salvation. It's quite an interesting way to describe a baby child, isn't it? To talk about them as salvation. Um, And we've already seen um, that Jesus' name means God saves. Jesus is the savior of the world. It's a really important word for Luke. But it's also a word with a number of different meanings in the Bible and in Christian circles today. So I want to pause for a moment and have a think about what this word salvation means here when Simeon says that Jesus is salvation. When I first moved to Northern Ireland, I was struck by hearing people talk about when they got saved. Have you heard that expression, you got saved? Um, That means something like when I had my sins forgiven and I got a new life with God. And that's a, there's a biblical use of that, of that way of talking about salvation. The Bible does talk about salvation like that. But I don't think that can be what Simeon means here. Because uh, Simeon is already a believer. He's got the Holy Spirit on him. He's righteous and devout. So this isn't the moment that Simeon gets saved. And I think it's good to spot this, because if we just think of salvation just as that kind of getting saved idea, then there's a danger that we narrow the Christian life down to something very individual. It's just all about me getting to heaven. Or it's all about you. When are you going to get saved? And it's just one by one, our relationship, our salvation with God. 
Well, there's another meaning for salvation in the Bible, and it's more of an idea of deliverance or rescue. Uh, it's a, the idea of um, when a king comes along, or we're looking in judges at the moment in our evening services, and when a judge comes along, they save the people. Uh, they come and rescue them. And people have pointed out that at this time, Jerusalem was under the thumb of the Romans. I found out this week that they'd actually built a fortress next to the temple that overlooked the temple buildings so that the Romans could look down onto the courts and see exactly what was happening in the temple. So we need to think about this conversation as something that's happening sort of under the lens of the security cameras. So is this what Simeon's talking about? As he lifts up Jesus, is he talking about a deliverer who's come to free them from oppression and to bring the kingdom of God? And almost in reaction to the getting saved idea, this has become an increasingly popular view to to talk about salvation. Um, It's not just about me getting to heaven and having my sins forgiven. Salvation is about the kingdom of God coming to earth, bringing freedom and justice for all. Well, that's all fine, but we'd be better to ask, what does Simeon and what does Luke think uh, this salvation is? And if we did that, I think we find that they've already told us. So we've already seen in verse 26 that Simeon is looking forward to the consolation of Israel. Consolation, that's a funny word, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, it's related to the idea of comfort. You, when you console somebody, you comfort them. And that reminds us of Isaiah 40, doesn't it, that we read earlier, that begins, comfort, comfort my people Israel. Simeon is looking forward to the comforting of Israel. Um, So Luke is pointing us back then to Isaiah chapter 40, and particularly following on all the way through to chapter 55, which is really one of the richest sections of the Bible. It's a section all about salvation and what it means. Um, So to find out what it was that Simeon was actually looking for, let's just turn back to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Page 723 in those pew Bibles. So what is the comfort then that God is going to bring to his people? Verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, the hard service there, that is a reference to the exile. Remember I said that this passage came uh, in response to God sending his people into exile because of their sin. So Simeon is longing for a time when God's people won't be under foreign rule anymore. They were back in their land, but they were still under Roman rule. And so in some ways, the exile hadn't ended But Isaiah 40 says that that end of exile will only come when sin has been paid for. So do you see the link? There's a link between those two things. Deliverance from oppression, the kingdom of God coming, can only happen when sin is fully paid for. We saw this when we looked at Zechariah's song. We saw that forgiveness of sins was at the heart of what God is doing. And we're seeing it again today. Well, what does this mean then for for Simeon, and what does it mean for us? Well, Simeon, I think, is living with a bit of a tension. 
Uh, Simeon maybe isn't worried at a personal level about his own forgiveness of sins. He knows that God has promised to save him if he trusts in God. Uh, And Simeon's doing that, so he's already saved, if you like. But he is still worried about sin. It's not like he's moved on from sin and he's now looking just for society to be improved. He knows that as long as sin is not fully paid for, there's this kind of barrier between God and his people. It's a blocker. Evil in the world means that the kingdom of God cannot fully come. And that means that evil will still have deadly power. Death will threaten us. And so Simeon is longing for the day when God says that he has paid for the sin of his people. He's longing for that comfort. He's longing for the day when he knows that the tension will be resolved and to know that God's salvation has fully come. And as he read on through Isaiah chapter 40 to 55, he'd have come eventually to chapter 53, that famous passage that tells us that sin will be paid for through the suffering of a servant. A servant who will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that's what Simeon sees when uh, the Spirit leads him into the temple and he sees Mary and Joseph lining up with their five-week-old son to offer a sacrifice. Simeon sees the salvation of God. He sees that servant of God as a baby. At last, the servant has come to take away the sin of God's people. At last, the kingdom of God can come. Well, that is a bigger salvation, I think, than just me going to heaven. It includes that, but it's bigger. And it's also a bigger salvation than just healing a broken society. This is a salvation that will remove sin and evil from our world. It's God coming and speaking tenderly to us in the midst of all of our sin, in the midst of all of our evil and brokenness, and saying that he has sent his son to be our saviour. Those are the words of comfort that Simeon hears as he looks at that baby child that first Christmas. And that is the salvation that Simeon and Anna dedicated their lives to looking forward to, to waiting for. It can't have been easy, can it? All those years in the temple, day after day for for Anna. Simeon wondering when he's going to die or when he's ever going to see the Messiah. You imagine he's quite old by now. Maybe his eyes are becoming weak. But he's hanging on, waiting, trusting that God's promise won't let him down. Maybe it was embarrassing going into the temple waiting. Maybe Simeon felt stupid as he walked around that day feeling sort of led by the Spirit. I don't know. It's not an easy thing, though, is it, waiting? But when Simeon sees Jesus, Simeon praises God because his waiting has been worthwhile. Um, But he also prophetically looks forward. Um, And that's what we're going to spend the next bit of our time looking at, what Simeon says uh, in response to seeing Jesus. Uh, So turn back to Luke chapter 2, if you've closed it, and we'll have a closer look at that. If you scan your eyes down verses 29 to 35, you can see a lot of the themes that we've seen already in these songs of praise in, in Mary and Zechariah come up again. Simeon sings of God keeping his promises, of peace, of light dawning, and of revolutionary impacts in society. But Simeon's songs add two 
key themes that we haven't seen yet in Luke's Gospel. And they're going to be really important themes for us to note as we go on in, in Luke. These are th- sort of previews, remember, of salvation. Well, this is, this is key stuff that Simeon's sharing with us. Um, the first one, um, well, I'll, I'll say it in a second, but it, it, it got me thinking about that title we've given the series, Saviour of the World. Now, we've seen a fair bit of salvation as we've gone through, but we haven't seen very much of the world side of things so far in Luke's Gospel. It's actually all been quite Jewish, hasn't it? Remember, we started with Zechariah burning incense in the temple. We've dropped into a circumcision party. And now here we are, back again in the temple, discussing what the hope of the Jewish people was. And you could be forgiven for almost switching off at this point, unless you're Jewish, and thinking, well, what's this got to do with me? Well, have a look then at verse 32. What is this salvation that Simeon sees? Well, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Well, again, Simeon's showing that he's spent a lot of time reading his Bible. Uh, when he praises God, this biblical language comes pouring out. And this, again, is from the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah says that God's servant will be a light for the nations. So here's our first theme that Simeon gives us. God's salvation is going to be for the world. And I want us to remember this as we go on in Luke's gospel over the next few months. Because inevitably, Jesus spends a lot of his time in Galilee and in Israel meeting Jewish people. And so we might think, well, where's all the savior of the world stuff coming from? But remember that Luke will be showing us people who are outcasts and outsiders in Israel, people like lepers and tax collectors. And because we've heard this theme already in Luke, we can remember that this is Luke's way of telling us that we're included too. We're outsiders in God's plans, but he's bringing us in. We're part of the nations, but we can see ourselves in these Jewish lepers and Jewish tax collectors that Jesus meets. Jesus is here for all of us. The consolation of Israel is going to mean the salvation of the whole world. We tend to take that for granted a little bit, I think, don't we? But when you think back to that day in the temple that conversation, you start to see a little bit of how amazing this is. These words were spoken by an old man who was being watched by imperial soldiers. And so no wonder, verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was being said about him. It was scarcely believable, wasn't it, that this child at this point was going to be the one that brought God's promises to the world. But history's shown Simeon to be correct, hasn't it? We saw when we looked at Acts about a year ago now that after the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel starts exploding across national boundaries. Jesus sends his church out to the ends of the earth to witness to salvation. And so the five-week-old child who was born in a backward colony under the thumb of Roman rule to parents who could only afford to offer a pair of doves or two young pigeons, that child has become the saviour of the world. So that's the first theme, then, in Simeon's prophecy. Jesus is the saviour of the world. But there's a second theme that emerges as he carries on, um, and he speaks directly to Mary. And this one is slightly darker in some ways. Have a look at verse 34. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon saying that God's salvation will be opposed. I don't know if you saw it, but a few weeks back, Jill sent out a PDF on the Kirkpatrick email list with the results of a survey that had been done in England about everyday evangelism. And there were lots of things in that survey that I found very encouraging as I looked through. Um, For example, two-thirds of practicing Christians, and that means people who go to church at least once a month and read their Bible and pray, two-thirds of those people said that they had a conversation about Jesus with a non-Christian friend in the past month. I think that's pretty good going, isn't it? If we're all doing that, I think that's a fantastic thing. But there were some less encouraging statistics. Always struggle to pronounce that. Um, And these are the ones that the newspapers picked up on. Uh, So the Telegraph, for example, wrote that stark new research findings suggest that practicing Christians who talk to friends and colleagues about their beliefs are three times as likely to put them off, God, as to attract them. Did you catch that? So if we talk about Jesus, apparently three times as likely people will come, come away saying... I I feel less enthusiastic about Jesus now than I did. Um, This survey polled not just Christians, but non-Christians all across the country and and discovered this. I have to say, I was quite discouraged when I read that. All this effort that we're we're doing, trying to love people on our front lines, trying to bear witness to Jesus with our lives, trying to talk about him, is that all a waste of time? Are we more likely to put people off Jesus than to encourage people to come to him? Well, I found it helpful this week to look again at Simeon's words and see that Simeon, at the same time as he gives this massive hope about Jesus being the light to the nations, is also very clear that Jesus will be a divisive figure. He'll be a sign that is spoken against. And this is really the first time, I think, in Luke's gospel that we've seen this. It's not going to be all joy to the world and peace on earth as Jesus grows up. There will be conflict and opposition and hostility. But in a way, that just leaves us with a tension, doesn't it? That, how do we fit these two ideas together? Is Simeon sort of schizophrenic? Is God schizophrenic? He's promising light to the nations, and yet people are going to reject Jesus. We're meant to go out and share Jesus, and yet a lot of people will reject Jesus. Well, one thing that fits these two uh, bits of Simeon's prophecy together is the idea of revelation. Um, Simeon says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and he says that Jesus will, um, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Revelation, uh, you could translate that exposure. It's a kind of unveiling. It's a removing of something that's covering things, so you can see it more clearly. Exposure. Jesus will expose God's ways to the nations. He'll expose the thoughts of many hearts. I find it helpful to think of Jesus as a a big searchlight that sweeps through the rain. For those who want to be found, Jesus is a beacon of hope. But for those who prefer to stay hidden, a searchlight is a danger and a threat. It threatens to expose you and bring you into the light. And Jesus is just such a blazing light. When we encounter Jesus, we cannot stay the same. 
we'll find ourselves, in Simeon's words, either falling or rising with Jesus. We will not stay in the same place. And that's what's happening today whenever Jesus is made known. And it's what's going to happen in 2016, if God gives us a full year of 2016. The light will expose God's ways to the world and will either fall or rise with him. Well, as we conclude, is that the tension resolved? Is that it fixed? Not, not really, is it? As we get ready to take down the decorations and head into 2016, we're heading into a year that our society and many of us probably believe will be better than last year. In fact, I was just looking on my phone this morning, and even after a, a pretty bleak 2015, um, there was an article saying on The Guardian, I think, um, that here's some reasons that, to believe that 2016 will be better than 2015. Uh, one of the most useful things I've been asked to do in the last term at college is to read a book that picks up five of the basic stories in our society that nearly everyone believes and just takes for granted. And two of them had to do with this idea of progress. Um, technological progress, we assume that science and technology will be making our lives better over the coming years. But also moral progress. Our society assumes that we'll become more moral, more just as a society over the coming years. We, we tend to believe that old views are, are by definition less likely to be true, less likely to be moral and good than, than current views. And that's interesting for us as Christians, isn't it? As we go into 2016, we're going into 2016 pointing back to the year zero. We're saying that as a world, we still haven't got our heads around what Simeon saw that day. And that leaves us with a tension. Because in our part of the world, it actually feels like the light that Simeon saw is sort of dying. Not only has the kingdom of God still not fully come, but the church seems to almost have one foot in the grave. Well, if, like me, you're tempted to respond to that by, uh, in, in two ways, I guess. Either by asking, how can I bring in God's kingdom in 2016? What can I do to make the light more visible? Or by just giving it all up in despair. But as we conclude, here's a suggestion for a different kind of New Year's resolution for us. Instead of working out what we want to do to improve our lives in 2016... Why don't we resolve instead to be people who will wait? Who, despite the tensions, will look expectantly for the kingdom of God and the salvation that Jesus will bring. I think we'll find that like Simeon and Anna, there's no shame in waiting. There's no shame in being people who are longing for the Messiah. Let's pray. Now my eyes have seen your salvation. Our Father, we thank you that we have seen by faith your salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him all those years ago to be our saviour, to deal with sin, to bring us into your kingdom, and to one day come and rule on this earth. And Father, we, we ask that you'll help us as we go ahead into this coming year to be people who, like Simeon and Anna, 
are ready to wait, who know that your salvation is worth waiting for, who are prepared, despite all the challenges, to keep looking back to Jesus coming that first time and to keep looking ahead to his coming again. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing now in response uh, to what we've been thinking about. We're going to sing Awake, Awake, O Zion, which I think captures quite well the, the yearning and the waiting that, that Israel and Jerusalem were doing um, in the days leading up to Jesus' coming. But it's also a song that I hope we can use to capture our own sense of yearning and longing and waiting uh, for Jesus to come back again. And yet at the same time remembering that he still rules. So let's stand and sing.